Welcome back, everybody, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Mitzel. Lucas, this is the One World series that I'm around for, and you are not, technically. Technically, and the threshold is not missed by a lot, because I'm in utero at this point. I was due in mid-December of 1989. I decided to force my mom to skip Thanksgiving dinner at my godparents and have to get turkey roll at the hospital on Thanksgiving Day. So, fun times. Meanwhile, I was forming during the 88 series. I was born in January. And my mom was busy watching the 89 Cubs win the National League East. She even called me her little Mike Balecki. But the Cubs are not going to be in this World Series. It will, in fact, be the San Francisco Giants being led by Will Clark and National League MVP Kevin Mitchell, who had 47 home runs, 125 RBIs, and one spectacular barehanded catch at Bush Stadium off the bat of Ozzie Smith, a play that continues to make highlight reels even now. Okay, first of all, can you have PTSD in utero? Because I'm pretty sure every Cubs fan who was around in 1989 gets PTSD from hearing the name Will Clark. I can't really answer for that. I'm going to have to defer to you or anybody else you know on that particular subject. Fair enough. But yeah, no, I mean, this was a Giants team that split the first two games in Chicago and then had a couple of come-from-behind victories at Candlestick Park to help close out the NLCS in just five games. Will Clark winning NLCS MVP there, and this is a good group as you look through... uh, Scott Geraltz was one of the main uh, guys. He went 14-5, and five, posted a 2.28 ERA for this Giants staff. They had uh, Steve Bedrosian leading the team with 23 saves. Uh, Craig Lefferts had 20 over the course of the season. They struck out 802 batters as a group posted a 3.31 team ERA. So on the pitching side, this is a pretty good group. Yeah, and it's really interesting since the Giants had 15 different starting pitchers that season, but nonetheless, it was enough to win them their first pennant since 1962. So it's been a while for them. It has not been nearly as long for our American League combatant, last year's World Series runner-up, the Oakland Athletics. They won 99 games in spite of injuries to Jose Canseco, and they won namely because... Ricky Henderson was reacquired from the Yankees on June 21st. This is actually his second go-around with the A's. And he reached base in 80 of 85 games with the A's, which obviously was needed since Conseco ended up only playing 65 games because of the aforementioned injury. That was six more wins than the next best team in baseball. And the A's beat the Blue Jays in the playoffs and enter the World Series as heavy favorites. Ricky Henderson had a fantastic LCS. He scored eight runs, had an on-base percentage of 609, swinging percentage of 1,000, had two homers, five RBIs, 15 total bases, and eight steals, including a tiptoed non-slide into second that pissed off the Blue Jays and I'm pretty sure all of Canada. So we have an all-Bay Area World Series. This is the first time we've had two teams from the same metropolitan area since the Dodgers left Brooklyn. So the last time that happened was in 1956 when Don Larson threw the perfect game for the Yankees against the Brooklyn Dodgers. And while the Yankees and Dodgers have faced each other the years since then, the Dodgers are now in the stage where this particular World Series is being completely set for the second straight year, mind you. 
Yeah, and then the other interesting uh, note from this one, this is the first matchup between these two franchises since 1913. We had the New York Giants and Philadelphia Athletics back in the 1900s and 1910s. The Giants beat the A's in five in 1905. The A's bounced back one in six in 1911, and then in five games again in 1913. And this is called the BART series, which is another way of saying the Bay Area Subway series, because just like the L in Chicago, the BART is the subway system in the Bay Area. However, not every Giants fan decided that the BART was enough to get there or even exciting enough. They decided to swim across San Francisco Bay 12 miles in 55 degree water to get to Oakland for the first game. What is anybody thinking in their right mind when they are trying that is what I want to know. I mean, to be fair, if you're trying to drive that, you're going to be sitting in traffic for forever. But at the same time, I wouldn't advise a 12-mile, 55-degree swim. That's insane. So let us get into this World Series. And before the first game, baseball acknowledges the tragedy that happened to it not long before this. Marcus Giamatti, who would later star on the show Judging Amy, throughout the first pitch before Game 1, he is the son of the recently deceased Commissioner of Baseball, A. Bartlett Giamatti. The ball still had his signature on it, and the World Series film decided to dedicate a segment to him. And it's possible that Giamatti died because he was stressed out from one of the more significant ordeals in the history of baseball. Only a week before he passed on, he made the decision to ban Pete Rose from baseball after investigating him for betting on the game. And it was just one of those really dark moments for baseball. You have to ban your all-time hits leader, and then all of a sudden, the man who did it drops dead. So I can certainly see why this World Series would start on a somber note. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Pete Rose has appeared numerous times on this podcast between his time in Cincinnati and then again in Philadelphia for a couple of series. And like you said, the all-time hit king and just kind of the unfortunate scenario of all of this with that band. And then the double whammy of Giamatti passing away here. And so credit to MLB Productions for taking a moment to honor the late commissioner as we uh, get into the Bay Bridge series, as it's also called, or the Battle of the Bay. We get our first base runner when Robbie Thompson reaches base after Dave Stewart, a 20-game winner, overthrows the ground ball that he fielded. And Thompson moves to second in part because of that big foul territory in the Oakland Coliseum that tortures opponents even today. Thompson, however, was late in tagging up on Will Clark lineouts to center and had to stay at second. And he ended up stranded after Mitchell grounded out to second. And then, in the second inning, Dave Henderson walks the lead off. He moves to second on a Terry Steinbach single. He scores an RBI single from Tony Phillips. Then Walt Weiss grounds to Clark at first, and Clark tries to throw out Steinbach at the plate. But Steinbach slides and knocks the ball out of the glove of Terry Kennedy. And the run scored, and Kennedy is charged with the error. Call it unfair if you want, but that's the beauty of baseball. And then Ricky Henderson scores on an RBI single from Phillips. 
Then Dave Parker leads off the third with a home run to right on a 2 nothing count. And he actually takes the time to talk about his home run shot on a World Series film, which today is just second nature to the players who hit home runs now. But home run trots, I guess, in 1989 were not often talked about. And this is kind of similar to the bat flip that happened during the 1987 series, which is another thing that's commonplace in baseball today, but was not as common in the late 80s. Yeah, that was the exact thought I had when you were talking about that was the um, Cardinal bat flip from just a couple of years ago was kind of the spiritual ancestor to what we see now in the trot here. And it's pretty tame. I mean, he's doing kind of a little dance and something with his hands on the way around, but he's not really doing anything to show up the opposition or anything. So I don't know necessarily why there's controversy to it, but this is also bearing in mind that this is 30 plus years in the past at this point when this wasn't really a thing quite yet. So, I mean, Dave Parker trotted so that everybody else could moonwalk around the bases, for example. And the home runs keep coming. Walt Weiss leads off the fourth with a home run to right. The Giants get some offense going. Clark and Mitchell have back-to-back singles to lead off the ninth. However, Stewart retires the next three batters to complete a five-hit shutout. He strikes out six. He walks one. The A's have their first victory in the series, five to nothing, the final score. Yeah, Will Clark said after the game of Dave Stewart, we ran into a buzzsaw, one of uh, my favorite terminologies. Uh, Scott Geralt started the game for the Giants. He gave up all five of the runs, only four of them earned. Again, the unearned run coming on that error on the play at the plate, the slide that broke up the tag. Uh, he threw 76 pitches, 47 of them for strikes. Um, Atley Hamaker, Jeff Brantley, and Mike Lacoste go the final five innings, allow just four hits, but no runs the rest of the way. Unfortunately, Dave Stewart not in a giving mood on the mound. And the A's strike early again in game two. Ricky Henderson walks to lead off the first thing, steals second, so he pulls with Lou Brock there. And he scores on an RBI double by Carney Lansford. And it's really interesting here because Al Michaels mentions that Lansford was dangerous with runners on. And that prompts me to look up his slash line for 1989 with runners on. And there was definitely something to what Al Michaels said. 321, 403, 375 for a 777 OPS. So not the biggest OPS in such a situation by any means, but still very impressive. I mean, even the fact that it was hitting 321 with runners on, that's exactly what you want out of a guy that's hitting in the number two hole with the greatest leadoff hitter of all time batting in front of him. The A's have Mike Moore starting this game. He signed as a free agent in the offseason, and he got himself into a little bit of trouble in the third inning. Kennedy single to lead off, and he was promptly forced out second. But Moore could have turned a double play if he hadn't double-clutched his throw off of a grounder from Jose Uribe. And sure enough, Uribe moved to third on a Brett Butler single, which was made possible when Weiss had short moved in the wrong direction. Uribe scores the tying run on a sack fly by Thompson. And then Butler moved to third on a wild pitch. However, he was stranded there despite crossing the plate because Clark struck out and the ball was thrown to first for the third out. And then Jose Canseco walks to lead off the fourth. He promptly scores a Parker RBI double off the wall that nearly misses being a home run. And Parker has to slide to second to get there safely after going into that aforementioned home run trot. 
But the reason that we know this was a close play is because this play will be highlighted before the next game, and we'll explain why that's significant in just a moment. But Candy Maldonado hesitated on his throw back to the infield, so it's possible if Maldonado had thrown quickly that he could have gotten Parker trying to stretch it into a double. But nonetheless, the damage already has been done on Oakland's part. I don't think that that really mattered too much because three batters later after a Henderson walk and McGuire strikeout, Terry Steinbach launches a three-run home run to left and makes it a 5-1 to one ball game. And interestingly enough, Tony LaRusse made a pregame prediction that Steinbach would hit a home run, so... It's not quite as impressive as Babe Ruth calling his shots, but I would say that's manager's instinct because, you know, you're with these guys from months out of the year. Eventually, you pick up on their tendencies. Moore gives up four hits, one run, two walks, and strikes out seven over seven-plus innings. And then we have two shutout innings by Rick Honeycutt and Dennis Eckersley. Eckersley is still dominant as he was a year ago. Honeycutt and Eckersley do not give up a hit or a base runner. They finish the game. The A's are going to San Francisco after winning this game 5-1. to one. Yeah, Mike Moore was relieved with nobody out in the top of the eighth. He managed to get ahead 0-2 on Ken Obergfell, but Obergfell singled into left field. At that point, Honeycutt came in. He got Brett Butler swinging for the first out and then induced a 6-4-3 double play from Robbie Thompson. Honeycutt stayed on to start the ninth, got Will Clark to ground out. Eckersley came on, got the final two guys, a uh, pop-out by Kevin Mitchell and a ground-out by Matt Williams, and the A's did exactly what they were supposed to do, take care of business at home and get ready to head to San Francisco up two games to none. So at the end of our last episode, we mentioned a great tragedy happening during this World Series, and we did mention the passing of Commissioner Giamatti. And as tragic as that was, it would be nothing compared to what we're about to talk about here. No, absolutely not. So Game 3 was originally scheduled to start on October 17th, so you have the off day in between, as is tradition, even though your two teams are literally right across the bay from each other. So the game was scheduled to start at 5.35 Pacific Time at Candlestick Park. The ABC broadcast begins pretty much right away at 5 o'clock, and so we get to the initial pregame feed. Al Michaels is your play-by-play man and, incidentally, our um, narrator of the World Series film for 1989. And so he's getting into it, doing kind of his usual thing, and they're talking through that aforementioned Parker double from Game 2 when tragedy strikes. So it's Tim McCarver who is talking about the aforementioned Parker RBI double and the other broadcaster in the booth is Jim Palmer, although we have not heard from him just yet. But the highlight that McCarver is talking about has just finished and then we get a slight flicker, we see a shot of Jose Canseco and then the picture just goes dark and we hear some static and we hear Al Michaels quickly say, I'll tell you what, we're having an earth and then nothing. And we just see a graphic that says World Series on it and the ABC logo. And my mom was actually watching this as it happened. And she had no idea what was going on. She briefly changed the channels to make sure that was just the channel and not the TV. And sure enough, that was not the case. It was, in fact, ABC's broadcast being knocked out by... A huge earthquake that hits the Bay Area. And 
at that point, we don't hear anything. We don't see anything except for the aforementioned ABC graphic. And then finally, after a few seconds, we hear a phone line where Michaels, McCarver, and Palmer are all confused as to whether they are on the air or not. And when Michaels is able to confirm that they are, in fact, on the air, he says, Well, folks, that's the greatest open in the history of television, bar none. And they were all grabbing for what they thought was a rest in their chair, but it turned out they were all grabbing each other's thighs, so they all ended up with really thick bruises during the 15 seconds or so that this earthquake happened. As Al Michaels points out, they have no picture, no return audio, and they'll be back in just a moment. But of course, they are not back in just a moment, so ABC cuts to its rain delay programming of episodes of Roseanne and the Wonder Years with intermittent reports from Ted Koppel in Washington talking about what just happened. We'll talk more about that earthquake in just a moment. But next door to ABC, we have CBS Radio's booth with John Rooney, Jack Buck, and Johnny Bench. And they were not on the air when the earthquake happened. They were either in commercial or running a pregame recorded piece or whatever. But they all scared from the nearest exit to wait out. And the rumbling stopped in time for them to take their positions before they're supposed to go back on. And Jack Buck probably had the most memorable line of that perspective that said, I must say about Johnny Bench, folks, if he moved like that when he was playing, he didn't never hit into a double play. I never saw anybody move that fast in my life. So I actually looked up Johnny Bench's career numbers, and during his long career, he hit into exactly 201 double plays. All he had to do was run like he was in an earthquake, and he would have had zero double plays, according to one Mr. Jack Buck. Hey, I'll go with it. Meanwhile, umpire Al Clark was down in the locker room preparing to work this game. He rushed out onto the field in his underwear. Stadium worker Benjamin Young was atop the light stanchion when the pole began to sway, and he got down there, fortunately. The World Series film makes note of that. They also make note of a sign of crowd that was hastily put together that said, that was nothing. Wait till the Giants bat. And keep in mind, these are Californians. You know, they're used to the threats of earthquakes. So they're probably thinking, oh, that was really big. But uh, hey, this could be a sign that the Giants are going to come out and play their best tonight. But it soon becomes very quickly apparent that there's a lot more to this than what is being known inside Candlestick Park. This is well before social media and the full pervasiveness of the internet. So, I mean, everybody here is okay. And now what's interesting, too, is during the 1988 offseason, Candlestick Park had received some upgrades to kind of help make the facility more durable in the event of an earthquake. And so that includes like basically spacers, for lack of a better term, so that when you have shaking like this, there's a little bit of give with everything so that the building itself doesn't come falling apart. And so you can actually see a lot of these spaces that are opened up in the aftermath of this earthquake. And I don't remember who it was. One of the players, I think brother or brother-in-law or somebody was at the game in, I think in one of the upper decks and said fan had gone to the concession stand at 5.04 p.m. when things hit. He came back to his seat and there was a chunk of concrete in it. And that's the amazing thing about this is that with everything going on at Candlestick, nobody was seriously hurt. 
they're able to get order restored. We get a police officer out on the field having to use the speaker in his car to kind of direct folks to say, you know, the game has been postponed. We need everybody to leave in an orderly fashion because there's 53,000 people in this stadium. That was San Francisco Police Commander Isaiah Nelson who told now Commissioner Faye Vincent to postpone the game and Vincent agreed. And this turned out to register 6.9 on the Richter scale, which if you know anything about the Richter scale is a very serious earthquake. And the players and coaches at this point aren't even caring about baseball anymore. They're looking for their families in the stands. And the field is probably the safest part of that stadium at that moment. So they are going to husband mode and father mode. And there is a very iconic image of Terry Steinbach and his wife comforting each other because their two-year-old daughter was at home with a nanny back in Oakland. And because this is, like you said, before the era of cell phones and the internet, and there's no way to reach the nanny quickly, they are understandably very worried about what's happening to their daughter. And fortunately, the daughter turned out to be all right. But it's just one of many ways in which humanity was brought out of these usually emotionless ballplayers and coaches. And, you know, I look at these images, Lucas, and I see these babies, and I think, wow, I was nine months old at this time. That could have been me. And while there wasn't anybody seriously injured inside Candlestick Park, there were a couple of heart attacks, and the majority of the fans were merely scared. And... Once people got outside of Candlestick Park, the devastation is apparent. 67 people are dead. Around $7 billion in damage has been caused. And probably the most iconic image, at least initially, was the Bay Bridge collapsing. And the tremors are violent enough to topple a lot of buildings in San Francisco's Marina District. And at that point, people just don't really care about baseball anymore. Although, incidentally, there was an 83-year-old woman who had been in her mother's womb during the last serious San Francisco earthquake back in 1906. She was actually sitting in Section 53 of Candlestick Park when the quake hit. There were some serious cracks in the cements there. And she said, if I have to go, this is the way to do it. But all joking aside, this was very devastating to the Bay Area. Yeah, it really was. Like you said, that picture of the Bay Bridge that was collapsed, because there's, you know, like the two levels to it, and you have the upper level basically completely fallen over. And I went after watching the World Series film to kind of see some newsreels and oral histories and kind of looking back on this particular moment in time. One of the other worst parts of this was the collapse of the Cypress Street Viaduct in Oakland around the 880 freeway, which is where a majority of the fatalities ended up occurring. And it's just, it's devastating to see all of that crumbling infrastructure. But you also see all of the humanity rallying together. And the World Series film goes on. We see, you know, Dave Stewart is helping put stuff together, gathering blankets and things to give to the first responders who are working feverishly to rescue people and the folks trying to help clean up all of this damage and just things like that that restore a little bit of faith in your humanity. ESPN was on the air very quickly after this earthquake happened, and they were able to get some images of the stretch of freeway that they had just come in by, 
And that was all devastated as well. And Bob Lee was just like, my God, we just came from that direction a couple of hours ago. And on top of that, too, is consider like the timing of all of this. Like this was a, again, 5.04 p.m. local time. This would be during the heart of rush hour on any normal day. But because you're playing in the World Series, you have a lot of people, you know, we mentioned the 53,000, however many that were at Candlestick Park at the time, plus who knows how many people that would have tried to leave work early or just end up someplace that in reality, this could have been way worse than it actually was. Well, it did turn out to be a major inconvenience for the A's and the Giants. Giants players who lived a short distance from Candlestick Park took a couple of hours or so to get home. The A's, meanwhile, could not access their normal route because that was devastated by the earthquake. So they had to actually travel to San Jose and then to Oakland. And normally that was a short drive, but they had to take a very different route and another iconic image from that aftermath was that Jose Canseco's car was low on gas, so he's actually spotted at a gas station filling up in full uniform. And Al Michaels did say that as big as the damage was to Candlestick Park, even though it was minor by comparison to some of these other things, it was probably, like you alluded to earlier, more earthquake-ready than any other Major League Stadium would have been. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it was a credit to the city of San Francisco and the state of California and peel behind the curtain a little bit. But in the aftermath of this, it just kind of reinforces the need for the city and the state to we need to update and modernize everything because so many of the buildings that were destroyed were all of these super old, not up to date yet. And it unfortunately took something like this to shake everybody into that sobriety of we need to do something so that when the next big one hits, we're ready and we don't have anywhere near as much destruction as we had. And Faye Vincent, in spite of calling this our modest little sporting event, because let's face it, the World Series is nothing compared to a lot of people having their lives upended by a natural disaster. And while he did make the right call to postpone the game and then delay it even further, he did have a couple of stupid criticisms thrown his way. For instance, the umpires filed a protest against him for postponing the game without consulting them. And then the day after the earthquake, there was that image of Vincent speaking at a hotel in a room that is lit by only candlelight and the TV camera lights. And he's kind of dressed down, which, you know, is pretty typical for any head of state or any significant authority leader when they're touring the site of natural disaster. You see it all the time. Well, George Steinbrenner had the nerve to call him and fury to tell him they looked awful without a coat and tie. Two words. Evil empire. This is a man who owned a franchise that to this day does not allow beards, so I'm not surprised that he would have the nerve to call the commissioner and talk about something that is so trivial compared to people who have lost a lot, if not everything. Yeah, I know. Seriously, read the room, George. I do want to circle back real quick to, we had talked about ESPN being on site. Now, their production trailer, and we mentioned Bob Lee was there. Chris Berman was on site for the World Series as well. And so, you know, they're helping with reporting in the immediate aftermath of the event. But they are set up right next to the trailer for San Francisco Police. 
And their trailer had a couple of phone lines available. They ended up having to dedicate one of those phone lines to San Francisco PD to help kind of coordinate emergency response. And so ESPN being the worldwide leader in sports, also being good neighbors and helping to facilitate the emergency response just by happenstance. You know, you could make the argument that this particular event really put ESPN on the map as far as people take it seriously as a news source. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's credit to people like Bob Lee and Chris Berman who were able to interject with a journalistic side of things that they absolutely weren't expecting to do going into this, but they knocked it out of the park. And Joe Torre, too. Here's a man who is less qualified even than them to handle an event like this. And yet, because he was an analyst for ESPN on site, he took on the role of reporter as well. So credit to all three men, as well as every crew member who was on site in San Francisco to provide probably outside of ABC, the most comprehensive coverage of an earthquake that in the great scheme of things, they should not have had a business covering, but because sports was involved, they still treated it as if they were ABC or NBC or CBS. So major, major kudos to the people at ESPN who were able to put this broadcast together with very little notice. Yeah, no, I mean, they were thrust into the fire and they passed it with flying colors. So while we have all of this going on, San Francisco Mayor Art Agnos wants to have a long delay because there's a lot of concern at this point. You know, when you have an earthquake, there's always the fear of the aftershocks. And Agnos initially wants to wait about a month before the series resumes. And for Faye Vincent, this isn't good enough. And if the delay is going to be that long, he is working on getting neutral sites set up for future games in this series if needed. And among those are both Wrigley Field and Comiskey Park in Chicago, Seattle's Kingdom, the Astrodome in Houston, and you have both Yankee Stadium and Shea Stadium in New York City. All of these are on standby just in case. Now, with all of this, eventually we do get everything to the point where we get an all clear to keep everything in Northern California. And it's only after some strong words are exchanged between the commissioner and the mayor on this that the World Series is able to go on as scheduled. Although during the days between the initial scheduled day for Game 3 and the actual day for Game 3, 10 days, even though it was initially a five-day delay, it is to this day the longest time between World Series games. The Giants stayed in San Francisco to work out. The A's went to Oakland and later went to Phoenix to work out as well. And finally, the teams are able to reconvene like you said, the game was supposed to be played on October 17th. It is now October 27th. And the players are happy to be back. The fans are happy to be back. The song San Francisco was performed before the rescheduled Game 3. The first pitches were thrown out by emergency workers, first responders. And I don't think you could have done it any other way. But there's still the matter of aftershocks. And we see on the World Series field, the umpires decide on the ground rule of if there are tremors, whatever happens, happens. So basically, tremors are treated the same way as if there was a shift of wind. Which, I don't want to sound morbid, but I would say, let's have like a 3.5 or a 4 earthquake, enough that you feel it, but not enough to really do any significant damage, just to see what would happen to some extent. Now, thankfully, 
we have no further real evidence of any aftershocks or tremors and everything goes on as is. And really the major shaking comes off of the bat of Oakland's Dave Henderson in this game. Lansford singles with one out in the first inning, as does Canseco, but not before Canseco takes two straight pitches way inside, which prompts emotions to run high and a few individuals to step outside of the dugouts. Mark McGuire grounds out to short, but both runners advanced as they had taken off with the pitch. Then Dave Henderson, who was 0-6 in the series entering this game, scored both runners with an RBI double off the top of the wall that barely missed being a home run. So both Parker and Dave Henderson have doubles that missed clearing the fence in back-to-back games. Then Matt Williams, who is the youngest player in the series at age 23, hits a solo home run to left with two outs in the second. That gives the Giants only their second run in 20 innings played in this World Series. And then Dave Henderson leads off the fourth with a home run to right center. Phillips then hits a solo homer to right. Two batters later, despite hitting only four in the regular season. And that is it already for Scott Gerelts. He only lasts three and a third innings. Kelly Downs comes in to relieve him. By the way, there's an image of Downs holding onto a kid in the aftermath of the earthquake. And that became just as iconic an image as anything else. So props to him for selling that kid down. With one out in the fourth inning, Clark and Mitchell have back-to-back singles. And then we have a walk to low the bases by Ken Oberkfell. And Williams strikes out looking, but Kenny hits a two RBI single. Then McGuire makes a nice play on a ground ball to first that is hit by Pat Sheridan. And Stewart covers the back to receive the ball and gets out of the inning. Ricky Henderson walks to lead off the fifth inning. He promptly steals second. That gives him a playoff record 11 stolen bases and three so far in the series. Lansford walks and scores when Kitsako hits a three-run homer to left center on a 2-2 pitch. Then Dave Henderson hits a solo homer with two outs. Dave Henderson having a heck of a game. That knocks Downs out of the game. And then Lansford hits a solo home run to left with two outs in the sixth. That gives the A's their fifth homer of the game. That ties a series record set by the Yankees in their 1928 clincher. Stewart, who is able to take the mound again because of the long layoff, pitches seven innings, gives up three runs on five hits, strikes out eight, and walks one. The Giants aren't finished yet, though. Oberkfell walks to lead off the ninth inning. He moves to third on a double by Kurtz Mamwaring. And then he scores a three-run homer by, of all people, Bill Baith, who was pitching for Craig Lefferts, who had come on in relief. And that sets a series record with seven homers in a game. And that makes Baith, with that one swing, the Giants' RBI leader in this series, which says it all about what's happening with the Giants' offense. He would still be tied for that at series end. And there was a bank of lights that went out Candlestick Park, even though some fans had brought flashlights in case the lights did go out. The Giants bat around the ninth, scoring four runs on as many hits, but it's not nearly enough to catch the A's. 13-7, the final score. The Giants made three errors in this game, by the way. Drink. We didn't even mention the best part about that Bill Baith home run either. It was his first World Series at bat. So we add him to the fairly long list of guys that have done so in their first World Series at bat. He is the fifth National League player to do that. 
Now, you have this little rally here. It's a 13 to 7 final score. The A's ended up adding another four runs in the top of the eighth, most of them on singles. A two run hit by Carney Lansford, Mark McGuire with an RBI ground out, and then Terry Steinbach with an RBI single as well. That made it 13 to 3. The Giants, as mentioned, get a little bit of run support to make this one a somewhat close game, but they end up running out of steam. 13 runs was way too many. Lansford and Henderson combined for six hits, six runs scored, six RBIs, five Giants pitchers make appearances. So the A's are looking for a sweep in game four. Roger Craig decides to start Don Robinson, who had only pitched one two-thirds innings over the previous 32 days. So he's kind of living dangerously here. But maybe he figures he'll get some inspiration from Willie Mays throwing out the first pitch before game four. But Ricky Henderson leads off the game with a sole homer. He becomes the series record eighth athletic to hit a home run. Then Dave Henderson doubles to lead off the second. Weiss is intentionally walked two outs later. And then Moore, that's right, Moore, scores both runners on RBI double to become the first AL pitcher to get a series hit since the Orioles' Tim Starr's RBI single in Game 4 of the 1979 series. And naturally, that ball was taken out of play. His only previous at-bat came in 1987 with the Mariners in a game, coincidentally, against the A's. Hitting pitchers forever. And Moore is promptly rewarded as he's able to score on a Ricky Henderson RBI single. Robinson is out of the game after only one and two-thirds innings. And then Kitsenko singles with one out in the fifth. Dave Henderson walks with two outs. And then both of our score on RBI triple by Steinbach, who promptly scores on RBI double by Phillips. So the A's are just slugging their way through this one. But then Will Clark singles with two outs in the sixth. He promptly scores on Mitchell two-run homer to left. Moore comes out of the game after the sixth inning, but only because he started experiencing back spasms in the fifth. He ends up getting relieved by Gene Nelson. And then Kennedy walks to lead off the seventh, and he promptly scores a two-run homer to left by another guy we have not heard from so far, Greg Litton. So what little offense the Giants are getting is not from the usual suspects. After the home run, Gene Nelson is able to induce a uh, flyout by Donnell Nixon, but at that point, that's enough for Gene Nelson. Rick Honeycutt comes in, and he immediately gets lit up. That's right, because you have Candy Maldonado tripling and promptly scoring an RBI double by Butler, who immediately scores on an RBI double by Thompson, who is pinching for Oberkfell. Honeycutt does induce a flyout to Clark, but at that point, you have Todd Burns coming on in relief. He induces a flyout by Mitchell. And then we have an interesting play from Will Clark. He actually falls into the first base stands near Faye Vincent, catching a foul ball that was hit by Phillips to end the eighth inning. So that gets Giants fans excited, but it's not nearly enough to help their cause. Eckersley pitches a perfect ninth inning for the save to end the series. 9-6, the final score here. The A's outscore the Giants 32-14 in the series. None of these four games are close. The A's, after letting it get away the previous year, finally get the job done in 1989. Dave Stewart ends up earning World Series MVP honors. He does so on the back of a 2-0 record in his two starts. One of them a complete game. He allows just three runs over the course of 16 innings. That is a 169 ERA. He struck out a series-high 14 batters in the series victory for the A's. A couple of heavy hitters for the A's who earned the first sweep in the World Series as the Reds swept the Yankees in 1976, the Big Red Machine. 
you have Ricky Henderson hitting 474, Dave Henderson 923 slugging percentage, Lansford a 438 average, Steinbeck drove in seven runs. It's just one of those instances where you're like, boy, this could have gone to anybody. Stewart, much like Oral Hershiser the previous year, is making history. Last year, Hershiser won NLCS MVP, World Series MVP, and the Cy Young Award. This year, Stewart becomes the first pitcher to win two games in both the LCS and the World Series. Really, there was no other player you could have given the World Series MVP to, although there were some viable candidates on offense. But the reality of the situation, which they won the World Series, came crashing down almost immediately. Des Eckersley would say, I'm happy, but I feel kind of guilty being happy. To that end, the A's opted not to celebrate their world championship with champagne. There was no emotion involved because pretty much all the emotion had been let out 11 days earlier. And really, I can't blame them for being really low-key with their World Series celebration. You kind of want to be respectful for everybody who has been affected in your community. And really, both communities were affected in this earthquake. Yeah, no, I mean, the A's read the room. They understood what was going on. And yeah, you have the initial excitement and the pile on the field after the conclusion of the series. But yeah, not doing the usual champagne spraying celebration that we're accustomed to seeing. It's the right call in this situation. And this, interestingly, will be the final World Series that is called exclusively by ABC. They will call parts of one more World Series in the future. It was a short but sweet tenure for ABC covering the World Series. You had Reggie Jackson hitting his three homers in 1977. You had the We Are Family Pirates winning in 1979. You had the strange World Series matchup in 1981. The O was dominating in 83. You had the controversial 85 series. You had the Homer Dome 87 series. And it wraps up with this 1989 series that, for all intents and purposes, took a backseat to everything that was going on. It was nothing more than a distraction for everybody. Credit to ABC. They had some great moments, some somber moments, but they handled everything really well. And I'm glad Al Michaels got to call some World Series action. And we will leave ABC for the most part behind. Again, we'll get into that other World Series when it comes but we are also leaving the 1980s behind. We are in the decade which we grew up as children, Lucas, the 1990s. And we start with 1990 next week. The A's are back again. And we will see an appearance from one of the most dominant teams for one season in the modern era. And the question is, will continuity reign or will this seemingly one-year wonder reign? Tune in next week to find out. So for Lucas Mitzel, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thanks for listening to our 1989 episode of Then There Were Two, A History of the World Series. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on what is still Twitter to us, subscribe. We'll see you next time. <laughs>